Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the preacher writes, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools, Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity. But fear God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon continues to observe life from a human perspective and from a divine perspective. Remember, in the first two chapters, he discusses the emptiness and the meaninglessness of life apart from God. And in the third chapter, the preacher suggests that God is a plan. And even though that plan is sometimes layered in mystery, it's a good plan plan. It's a trustworthy plan. It's a believable plan. In this chapter, the preacher makes observations about human words in verses 1 through 7, human wickedness in verses 8 through 12, human wretchedness in verses 13 through 17, and human wisdom in verses 18 through 20. In his wonderful commentary, Be Satisfied, Warren Wiersbe entitles this chapter, Stop Thief. And I like that because he proceeds to outline the chapter, Don't Rob the Lord in verses 1 through 7. Don't Rob Others in verses 8 through 9. And Don't Rob Yourself in verses 10 through 20. And there's a reason why, because Solomon is going to connect Issues of money with issues of worship. As a matter of fact, he cites a magazine cartoon where he pictures this dejected and depressed looking man who walks out of a bank manager's office. And the manager, the bank manager says to his secretary in the caption, that guy suffers from back problems, back taxes, back rent, back alimony. Bill Earl wrote. When your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. <laughs> That's good. Now, clearly, the preacher notes that there's a connection between our wallet and our heart, between our money and our worship. In the book of Ecclesiastes, remember what the preacher has done. He's journeyed into the courtrooms of justice to look for justice. He's journeyed into the human marketplace to see how people conduct themselves among themselves, how they conduct business. The preacher has searched the human roads of commerce and and uh, travel. He's made visits to the palaces of power. And now the preacher, as he's gone through all of these circumstances, he goes to the temple of God where human beings are worshiping, and clearly Solomon would have been an expert on the temple in Jerusalem, since number one, he orders its construction, number two, he develops its plans, he would have been intimately involved in the construction of this building, the sanctuary, the sacrifices, the call to worship. As a matter of fact, many, many scholars believe that up until that moment, when Solomon builds the temple, it becomes the most magnificent, the most beautiful edifice on the face of the planet Earth. And so in the temple, the preacher observes 
mindless worship, careless prayer, people making empty promises to God. And so remember what the whole theme is. It's the search for meaning. And so one of the things that he's going to be talking to us about is meaningless religion. Does religion have value apart from God? Apart from God's revelation of himself. And so it begins with the danger of mindless worship. Look at verse 1 again. He writes, (laughs) Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Now, in the ancient world of Solomon's temple, remember, this would have been a place where there would have been sacrifice in the morning, throughout the day, in the evening. The sacrifice of animals would have been a constant reminder of the powerful and terrible consequences of sin. Remember the reality of why a sacrifice is even taking place. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. And so there has to be an atonement that is made. So the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament argues that the permanent sacrifice of Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. The death of Jesus on Calvary's cross does what the law could never do. Make a person acceptable to God. As a matter of fact, if you turn just rather quickly to the book of Hebrews. And if you don't know where Hebrews is, you have to go right at Philippians Colossians, keep going past Thessalonians and Timothy. Come on, Gino. There's Peter. You've gone too far, Gino. I should have have marked it before I came up here. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to read, beginning in verse 1... For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can't can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect for when they would not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. And note carefully, verse four, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come and the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will. O God, the writer of Hebrews makes the compelling argument that the law and sacrifices can't make a person have a right relationship with God. It's important that you remember that we, according to the New Testament, are a holy priesthood. We, as Christians, we offer up sacrifices, but they're different kinds of sacrifices. Jesus is the one and only sacrifice, the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And so Paul in the New Testament says, you should offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We offer our gifts and our callings To be employed in God's service. In other words, God saves us. He gifts us by his Holy Spirit. We encourage people to come into a right relationship with God in Christ. We use our gifts and callings to minister, to love the poor and the needy, to disciple the saints, to reach the lost, if you will. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, Paul writes that I might be a minister of Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When he writes that, he sees himself as a priest offering a bloodless sacrifice to the true and living God. And the sacrifice that he's offering 
are the Gentiles. You and I, people who would be participants in the gospel. We offer our time, our talent, our treasure. We offer a broken heart in Psalm 51, 17. We offer our prayers given in faith. That's what we bring as sacrifices. Now, when Solomon writes, walk prudently, when you get to the house of God, we might translate that walk carefully or watch your step. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew is very interesting. It's an idiomatic expression. Literally, the text says, watch your foot. Now, what does that mean? It it literally means keep your foot. Now, here's the idea. People are walking into the temple of God. They're walking into the temple of God to worship God, but they're not sincere in their worship. They weren't coming in order to really, truly connect with God and listen to God and to receive from God. In other words, they were going through the perfunctory duties. They come to offer the sacrifice. They give the sacrifice to the priest. They watch the priest butcher the sacrifice. And then they leave. And Solomon's point is they leave worse than when they came in. Now, growing up like me, you probably had a grandparent or a parent who said, watch your step. Be careful. Watch your step, young man. Watch your step, young lady. Now, typically, if somebody says, watch your step, young man or young lady, it usually means that you come dangerously close to the border called disrespect. Now, I'm sure that you are all perfect children, unlike me, that you never said anything rude or wicked or weird or defiant to your parents and good for you. I wish I could say that about me, but it wouldn't be true. And by the way, why in the Bible is one of the big ten commandments, honor your mother and your father? Remember, it's the one with the promise, so that your life will be long. Anger sometimes draws us to the border of disrespect And life without boundaries isn't safe or secure. And so when he says, you're showing up, watch your step or keep your foot. He's basically saying, when you enter into the temple, when you enter into worship, when you come into the presence of God in worship, you're to do so respectfully. Warren Wiersbe writes, well, what was their sin? He writes, quote, they were robbing God of the reverence and honor that he deserved. Their acts of worship were insincere, hypocritical, perfunctory. When Solomon writes, draw near to hear, he means draw close so that you will hear from God. But remember what he's saying. It isn't just simply listening to the message. It means hearing the message and a willingness to obey the the message. In other words, was sacrifice ever a substitute for for personal obedience? In the even in the Old Testament, could you come to the temple, offer your sacrifice and then go live like the devil? The answer is no. Remember, that was the problem that Saul had. He tried to cover up his sorry disobedience with insincere sacrifices and pious promises. Remember, the, Samuel comes to Saul and he says, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. And remember, for those of you who are with me with First Samuel, the Amalekites were a type and a picture of sin. He wanted Saul to deal ruthlessly unequivocally, savagely to make a radical departure from sin. And Saul spared the king and he spared the animals. And so when Saul was coming back and Samuel heard the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cows, he said, what's this that you've done? Well, I spared the very, very best for God so that I could sacrifice them to God. Here's the deal. Saul 
wants to obey God and honor God according to Saul's rules, not according to God's rules. And that becomes part of the key that, that, that he's talking about. The whole idea is that offerings in the hands without obedient faith in the heart becomes the sacrifice of fools. That's the point, because only a fool thinks that he can deceive God. And remember, when the Bible uses the term fool, it doesn't mean a person who's stupid. And it certainly doesn't mean a person who's ignorant. You know what it means? It means a person who's morally void of judgment. In other words, the fool in the Bible is the person who hears the word of God or the commandment of God and says, that doesn't really apply to me. The fool thinks that he or she is doing good, but he or she is doing evil and God knows it. And that's the point that 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 Solomon is making in the passage. So what is the solution to the problem of mindless worship? In other words, is worship going to church? Is it singing the songs? Is it reading your Bible? Hey, you know what? We thank God that we get to sing songs and we thank God that we get to open up our Bible. But here's the point. If you're disconnected from the words and you're disconnected from the message, it's as if you never even showed up. And so the, pro, the, the the solution becomes an adequate preparation. You have to prepare your mind and you have to prepare your hearts for worship. The last thing in the world that a person wants to do is to show up at church and not have a mind and a heart that's prepared for worship. And you see, this becomes the point. Church isn't a place where you just show up and pray and you show up and sing and you show up and listen. It becomes, if you will, a terminus, a focal point, because you've been praying throughout the day. You've been setting your mind and your heart on things above rather than on the things below. And guess what? Your heart and your mind and your speech will be filled with what you occupy your heart with. We have to prepare our hearts and we have to prepare our minds for worship with the right kind of thoughts and with the right kind of words. Because how else are you going to be willing to hear what the Lord has to say unless you are willing? to open up your heart and open up your ears. In other words, as a preacher, it's my job to try and make this interesting. But as a listener, it's your job to connect. In other words, I can't, listen carefully, can I make you worship God? Can I make your heart be sincere? Can I make your motives pure? Do I have the ability to do any of those things? The answer is no. And so one of two things is really true. Either I'm helping your heart and your mind prepare and engage in worship, or I'm distracting your heart and your mind. We have every right to bring our sorrow. We have every right to bring our burdens. We have every right to come to church. And even though we've had a challenging day or a challenging week, we have to bring our burdens in the right way, with the right heart, with a willingness to obey what God says To respond to his message. And so Solomon understands the danger of empty worship. That it has no value. And he also understands the danger of careless prayer. Look at verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, Mindless and insincere worship becomes even more complicated by careless prayer. So the preacher begins with, you need to watch your walk. And now he says, now you need to mind your talk. 
So how should we think about prayer? Do we make liberties in our prayers and in the hopes that God will understand and overlook our immaturity and our wickedness and our weakness? But remember what prayer is. It's conversation with God. Over and over again, I get the question on my radio program. If God knows everything, then why should we pray? Think about what the question implies. God knows everything. Why should you even have to ask for anything? Since God knows everything, why go through this drama of even asking? The question implies that friendship and fellowship and relationship and communication aren't important. By the way, in a real relationship with real fellowship, when two people actually care about one another, do they want to communicate with each other? Do they want to spend time with each other? Do you remember when you were in love? Do you remember those long, leisurely hours on the phone? Remember? Are you there? Yeah. You know, for some reason, there's just a sense of comfort of breathing into the phone. Hey, what are you doing? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. Watching TV. And so here you are. On the phone, watching TV with someone who's on the phone, watching TV, and you're not even really talking, but there's this sense of comfort of knowing that that person is doing something that you're doing, and there's this sense of connection that you have with each other. So how should we think about prayer? Do we make liberties in our prayers? In other words, is this some sort of religious obligation that you engage in, in the hopes that God will go, oh, thank God you said your prayers. Talk that, yeah, okay, that religious obligation is now done. Some of us have enough sense to watch what we say around dignitaries. Every once in a while, through no fault of my own, I wind up, with a United States senator or, or with a congressman or with a governor or with a mayor or with some sort of dignitary. And, you know, as you can imagine, there's certain things that you should not say around dignitaries. Remember, I told you what, meeting with a former famous president. He goes, oh, you look strangely familiar to me. Anybody ever tell you you have really nice hair? Thank you, Mr. President. No, no, really, you do. You look familiar to me. I've got to tell you what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, we have something in common, Mr. President. We're both half white and we're both half trash. Good idea or bad idea to say that to the president? It's a bad idea. That's exactly right. It's funny if you're going for the laugh, but it's not the thing that you say around the president of the United States. But we take enormous liberties with God, don't we? We think, he's God, he knows my heart, he knows the truth anyway. But here's the point that I think that Solomon is making. If you are careful in your speech around dignitaries, if you're careful in your speech around clients, if you're careful about your speech around your children, then what gives you permission to say the most outrageous things to God? There was a television show that came on many years ago. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. It was called The West Wing. And in this television series, Martin Sheen plays the president of the United States. And in a particular episode, his daughter has been killed in a drunk driving accident. And there is a funeral and a memorial service and it, the, the, the chapel is filled and the dignitaries are there and they have the service and the president of the United States orders all of the people out of the building so that he can have some one-on-one -on -one time with God. And he begins this railing accusations. He, he cries out how angry and bitter and disappointed he is towards God. And he, and he says the most God-awful things that you can imagine. And then he takes a cigarette and he puts it on the chapel floor and he crushes it with his, with his shoe. And then he walks out. And guess what? They received tons of letters after that episode. Some people going... 
Hey, thank you for representing the honesty that a person is angry and bitter and resentful towards God. And very few letters saying, hey, pretty bad. That's a bad idea. Here's the point. We shouldn't take liberties in our prayers. We shouldn't treat God in a way that is inconsistent with his nature and his character and his dignity. Now, am I saying be insincere or be dishonest about your feelings? No, I'm, the, the reality is that you're going to be fair and you're going to be honest about your feelings. But the truth is we live in a world where we take liberties with the dignity and the majesty of God. The preacher warns about hasty words, and then he warns about too many words. In other words, he says things that you just say because you're not thinking it through. And then he talks about the, the, the surplus of words that many of us have. And so when Solomon writes, God is in heaven and you're on the earth, it's not so much about the distance that the preacher has in mind. He's not just simply saying God is far, far away and you're here and he's far, far away. This isn't really a conversation about distance as it is about perspective. The preacher is pointing out that because you're on the earth, you have an earthly perspective. And an earthly perspective almost invariably is going to be a limited perspective. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. You have access to the information that you have access to. God is in heaven. He has access to the information that he has. You have your point of view. God has only points to view. The point that Solomon is making is exactly that. He sees everything from the permanent perspective of his throne. Ours is a temporal perspective. His is an eternal perspective. God is invisible. God is immortal. God is eternal. God is unchanging. God hears everything. We learned on Sunday when we're going through 1 Peter chapter 5. Remember, we talked about... Casting your care on him because he cares for you. Is it okay to place your burdens on the true, the living, the everlasting God? Does he know everything about everything anyway? Yes. Do we have the right to enter into his presence and, and speak to him, knowing that he wants us to present our burdens and our cares, knowing that we have this enormous privilege that we can have an audience with the king of all eternity? So just like what is the secret to avoiding senseless and mindless worship, what is the secret to acceptable prayer? Well, again, David writes in Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, David writes, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The idea is that we understand and appreciate and, and focus in our prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, remember Jesus said, And when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. If you say something over and over and over and over and over again, does the sheer volume of the words create a mechanism where, whereby God hears? No. By the way, I'm not even for a moment suggesting that there are times in our life in brokenness and humility that we say things over and over and over again. Does that offend God? No. Remember, it isn't the content of the words so much as it is your heart. You pray with a prepared heart. You worship with a prepared heart. You pray with a prepared heart. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart's filled with sorrow, doesn't it make sense that you're going to say words that are sorrowful? If your heart's filled with joy, doesn't it make sense that your heart is going to have your, your mouth is going to be filled with words of joy? 
In verse three, the preacher offers the reader an analogy. And it's, it's a hard verse and it's almost impossible to translate, but I'm going to give it a shot. In verse three, it says, for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. I think what is happening is that Solomon, the preacher, is giving an analogy. And the analogy is, is a part of what's called, it's a wisdom contrast. Let me see if I can help you make sense of it. The person who goes to sleep after working really, really hard dreams dreams. Now, you've probably been in, in a cup. Have you ever gone to sleep and you had a fitful night of rest where you, you don't remember what you dreamt? Yet you're in and out of consciousness. And have you ever worked really hard all day throughout the day? And when as soon as your pillow hits the head, you're gone. And you dream. Oh, your dreams come to you over and over and over again. I think that this is what he's, he's basically saying. The person who works hard dreams many, many dreams. And so it is with the mindless person. A fool's voice is known by many, many words. In other words, these are mindless words, empty words that show that the person is mindless, empty, void of any significant content. So what makes a prayer effective or ineffective? Not the length of the prayer, but the strength of the prayer. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. It's not the length of the prayer, but the strength of our prayers that makes a difference. You've probably been in situations where you've heard a person make some big flowery prayer. But there's no substance to it. And then you hear the simple words of a broken man or woman as they're weeping over their child. As their, as their hearts are tender and broken in the, in, in the simplicity and purity of their own heart and circumstance, theirs is a focused prayer concerning what God would have for them. That's the point that he's making. And so not only does he talk about the danger of worship and the danger of prayer, but the danger of worthless promises. Look in verse 4. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, and it's really important you understand this. In the Old Testament, did God ever require people to make vows in order to be accepted by God? The answer is no. In other words, in the Old Testament, do you go, look, if you'll make certain promises to God, well, God will make promises to you. No. Remember, <laughs> God, those who came to God must would believe that he is. Remember, Abraham comes to him by faith, Isaac by faith, Jacob by faith, Joseph by faith. Over and over and over again, the Lord allows people to make promises if their intention is to keep the promise. In Numbers chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, Acts chapter 18, verse 18. In other words, is it wrong to make a vow to God. Not necessarily. You know. During the time of the Reformation. when Before the Reformation. When Martin Luther was a very young monk. He was walking through the fields of, of Germany. And the story is told that there, an electrical storm. Filled the sky. And I, I mean this was a pretty impressive storm. Like a life threatening storm. Lightning is falling from every direction. A, a lightning bolt comes. And hits the tree right next to Martin Luther and in fear and trembling he cries out to God and he basically says look if you'll spare my life I'll become a monk and by the way God spared his life he became a monk but here's the problem he wasn't saved he didn't have a right relationship with God in Christ he was the recipient of religiosity. He understood about re religious ritual. He understood about form and function. But his heart wasn't a heart that was filled with the knowledge of God by faith. And so he tried his best to be the best monk that he could possibly be. And he consistently failed. 
He writes in his diary of beating himself on his back as he's trying to bring his flesh under subjugation. He, he talks about how he has to deal with lust. And every time he'd see a beautiful woman, he would throw himself into a, a bush of thorns. As if that's going to help. I don't want to think about pretty girls right now. I'm just going to think about picking the thorns out of my flesh right now. And then something changed his life. He read the book of Romans. He read the book of Romans and he read the book of Romans. And as he read it, he read the words, the just shall live by faith. And he says that as if a darkness lifted from his from his eyes and from his heart. And that it, when he read the words that the just shall live by faith, what he what he understood was that those who would be justified before the true and living God must must believe that he is and that you are accepted on no other basis other than the finished sacrifice of Jesus. Christ, John Newton, a drunken, a slave trader in the midst of a storm, falls overboard. They stick a harpoon through his hip. They roll him back on. He prays a prayer. Lord, if you save my life, I'll I'll serve you. And he does. And he writes one of the most famous songs of all time. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to make a promise to God? No, it's not wrong to make a promise to God. It's just wrong to make a promise and not keep your promise. The problem is most of us are way willing to make a commitment. than we are to keep the commitment. We live in a world of half-hearted promises and empty commitments. By the way, if every single person kept their promises to God, Asia and Africa would be overrun with missionaries. I know people who make promises to God in the heat of life's battles. And some of them kept the promise. But some haven't. Maybe you've made promises to God. And maybe you've kept them. And maybe you didn't. You know, I told you the story. She's come and actually spoken from this very platform, uh, Crystal Miller. She was one of the young students at Columbine High School the day of the awful shooting. She was in the library when many of her classmates were killed and, and she found herself under a table. And they were coming towards her. And there was a threat to kill her. And she's praying in the best way that she knows how to pray. And as she's praying, she makes a promise to God. And she says, if you will get me out of this, I will serve you. You've all heard about it. It's called a foxhole conversion. In the, in the heat of battle, in the pressure of, of life circumstances, we say things. And we may or may not mean them. But she meant it. And she kept her promise to God. Because for whatever reason, God in his grace and his mercy showed up under that table on that day. He made himself known and his presence known. Some people were killed and some people were injured and, and some people escaped. How do we explain that? How do we explain that a James in the New Testament is beheaded and a Peter is miraculously released by an angel. I don't always have an answer to every single question, but I do know this. That when you make a promise to God, this may come as a shock and as a surprise to you, but he actually literally takes it personally. You may think, well, he's God and he'll get over it. But when you enter into a relationship and fellowship and friendship with God and you make promises to God, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. He actually expects you to keep your promise. In verse 5, when it says better not to vow than to vow and not pay. There's no obligation to make a promise. Your making a promise isn't going to make you any more saved or any less saved. You may experience a trial and you may experience a disability and you may experience some limitation and you, for whatever reason, decide to make a promise to God. The Bible's admonition 
When you make a promise, keep your promise. The preacher's warning of two sins. The first sin is making a promise that you have no intention of keeping. You know what the second one is? It's the sin of lying to God. That's the point of the passage. Making a promise to God is binding. And the preacher knows blaming God is foolish. And the preacher knows that bribing God is even more foolish. Can you bribe God and get your way? I'm going to suggest to you the answer is you can't. Is it possible that you make a promise to God and God fulfills his end of the bargain and you don't? This is what it means in verse 6. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hand? Let me help you understand what it is that you're reading. In this instance, if you look in verse 6, underline the messenger of God. The word, the messenger of God here, means the priest or the temple official. I want you to understand, remember, Solomon is still in the temple. People have come into the temple. They've offered their worships to, to God. They've brought their sacrifice. They come into the temple and they speak to the temple officials and they basically say, look, I promise that if I get this kind of harvest, I'm going to bring in this kind of harvest into the temple. Here's the point. It's the temple priest or it's the temple official who's given the news. They come to collect the promise and the person says, I'm no longer able to keep my promise or my pledge. So he's basically saying to the messenger of God, it was an error. I know I made a promise. I know I made a pledge, but I am unable to keep my promise. I'm unable to honor my pledge. That's the point. The picture, like I said, is the person who's coming to pick up the promised sacrifice or, or, or the gift only to hear the words, I've made a terrible mistake. So how are we to think about this? Does God hear what we say? Yes. Does God expect us to keep our promises? Yes. Does God also know when we make a foolish vow or an insincere vow or an impossible vow? The answer is yes. Well, does God expect me to keep those? My answer is, number one, in the future, never make a stupid vow. Does God know? Yes, he does. Does God understand? Yes, he does. Is it the unforgivable sin? Of course it isn't. I think we sometimes make promises and we really expect that we're going to keep our promises. But then we're faced with the sorrow. We're faced with the, the limitation. We're faced with whatever it is we're faced with. We make excuses. We rationalize. You know what a rationalization is. A plausible but untrue excuse of why you do what you do. God sees through the excuse. And here's part of the point of the passage. He sees through the excuse and he's not pleased with the excuse. There's an example in the book of Judges where Stupidly, the judge makes a foolish vow. He basically says, look, if you'll give me the victory this day, whatever comes out of that door, I'll offer it to you. And you remember what comes out of the door. It's his only daughter. By the way, does the Bible say, well, under those circumstances, we think human sacrifice is a good idea. Is human sacrifice ever a good idea? No. Should he have made the foolish vow? Of course he shouldn't have. Once he made the foolish vow is the way to make things right to kill his daughter. Now, the answer to the question is what you've learned since you were a child. Do two wrongs make a right? So what is the whole point when you're dealing with a series of wrong issues? You stop the wrong in its tracks. If it's within your power... To say, 
I did something stupid. And because I've done something stupid, the way to fix the problem isn't to perpetuate the problem by doing something else that is wicked or is sinful or is stupid. And so, part of the point is this. Number one, God takes your promises seriously and personally. Number two, when you are in doubt, it's better not to make a promise at all. In the New Testament, remember what Jesus says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, because anything else usually comes from wickedness. So think about that. It's a difficult concept to wrap our heads around, but I'm going to tell you something. It's true. God loves you. God values your friendship and relationship. He cares about it when you speak to him. He is absolutely aware of promises that you make, and he genuinely expects you to keep your promises. And he says, why should God be angry at your excuse? There's a reason why the text says that. Why should God be angry at your excuse? The idea being, why make things worse by refusing to keep your promise? And in verse 7 it says, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity, but fear God. Now, I want you to point this out. In verse 7, the preacher points out that people imagine. For in the multitude of dreams and many words. Here's the idea. The preacher is pointing out the person who makes the statement, I had every intention of keeping my promise. I even dream about keeping my promise. I imagine a world in which I am able to keep my promise. Does that make you keep your promise? Imagining the promise. Dreaming about the promise. They dream about giving large amounts to missions or ministries. People will say to me, you know, I prayed, Lord, if I win the lotto, I will give. Well, if it's a ten million dollar, I'll give one million dollars to the church. My advice Take the dollar that you're going to spend on the lotto ticket and just stick it in the agape box. I would rather have one real dollar than one million imaginary dollars. So people dream about keeping their promises. They dream about keeping their marital promises. They dream about discipleship promises. They dream about what it would be like to be sober or drug-free or addiction-free. They dream, they go, Lord, I'm dreaming about what it would be like to be happily married. I'm dreaming about what it would be like to be alcohol or drug-free. I'm dreaming about what it would be like to not to stop lying all the time. The Bible's answer, stop dreaming. Keep your promise. If you're going to stop drinking, stop it. If you're going to stop drugging, stop it. If you're going to be faithful to your husband and wife, be faithful. There are people who dream about fulfilling their promises or their vow, but they never get around to it. They dream about it. They dream that next week will be the week that they actually begin to enter into the specific issue of keeping their promises. There are people who love to come to the altar. They love to come forward in the church service. They love to pray. They love to weep. They love to practice a make-believe religion that neither glorifies God nor builds Christian character. They will come down and they will cry week after week and month after month and year after year, but they have no intention of keeping their promise. 
Anyone who's ever dealt with a drug addiction, anyone who's ever dealt with an alcohol addiction, anyone who's ever dealt with liars, anyone who's ever dealt with thieves, anyone who's ever dealt with this knows, knows, knows that you've got to make a clean break, but it's not good enough to make a clean break, but you now have got to enter into the very hard work of making your promise come true. Remember what the Bible says? Stop lying. Start telling the truth. Stop stealing. Start working. Stop making promises that you will never keep. And be a person who keeps their word. Look at how it ends. Fear God. Another translation. Rather fear God. What is Solomon saying? What does that mean? I want you to just ask yourself quickly. Do you think it minimum means don't take God seriously? Can it possibly mean that? I don't think it could possibly mean that. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Do you think it minimum means take God seriously? You think that's fair? Do you think fearing God at least incorporates some modest seriousness? So here's the idea. Don't think that you have freedom to play games with God. Don't think that you have the freedom to mumble empty thoughts and meaningless promises to God. Here's, I think, part of the point. Take worship seriously. Take prayer seriously. Take Bible study seriously. Take God seriously. Take your friendship with God seriously. Begin to ask and answer the question, I want to look at the Lord from the perspective of of the Scripture. I want to understand God's nature and attributes. I want to deepen my love and expand my respect for the God of the Bible. I read the story of a 17-year-old boy who was accused of burning down a church in Nashville, Indiana. And at the trial, he explained how he took a cigarette lighter and he burned this 100-year-old church to the ground. You know what his explanation was? I was angry with God. A woman posted online, That she lost her husband and she lost her son in separate accidents. And she wrote, I'm angry at God. I'm very angry. She wrote what many of us are unwilling or reluctant to confess. Now, clearly, God is a good God, and clearly, it's not a good idea to hide feelings, and clearly, sustained bitterness towards God is irrational. And unbiblical. Some people think that they need to forgive God. I got to tell you, that's bad theology. The reason God is incapable of doing wrong. I need to be very clear here. The Lord God never requires your pardon. Why do you suppose that is? Because he's incapable of doing anything wrong. He is perfect. Just and true are your ways, O Lord. It's a bad idea to blame God. And it's a a bad idea to ignore God. It's a bad idea not to take him seriously. You know what worship does? It reminds us of the values that the world wants us to forget. Worship brings you to a place and asks you to consider to love him and to value him, to not ignore him, to cry out to him and depend upon him. In Psalm 66, which is sort of the hymn book for the Old Testament, it says, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. He basically says, look, when I'm in trouble and when I'm in deep need and the moment that I I say, look, if you will do this, I will do this. He says, I'm going to honor that. There was a. A terrible TV evangelist who was on for years. 
And his uh, shtick was vows. Call in and make your best vow to God. So I called in. Called the number. I vow never ever to give you a single dime so long as I live to your perverse, wicked, self-serving ministry. I don't think that that's the kind of vow he had in mind. But you know what? What he did is he took the biblical view of a vow and he twisted it and perverted it in order to make a money machine for himself. We as Christians don't go to the house of God with burnt offerings. We have something way better and way more permanent. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the satisfying solution. Jesus is the sacrifice that's been offered and accepted by God so that we can enter into friendship and fellowship and relationship with God and with Jesus as Lord and Savior. Worship is living and vital and active and vibrant and truthful and meaningful. And here's the point. Do you think Solomon thinks it's a good idea to go into a place and have empty worship and empty prayer and empty promises? Is that what worship is about? It can't be. It has to be vibrant, truthful, meaningful, connected. And that's the point. The Lord seeks those, the Bible says, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. C.S. Lewis wrote, the perfect church service would be the one where we're almost unaware because our attention has been focused on the Lord. In other words, the perfect church service is the one where you go, the Lord is here. The Holy Spirit is here. God is here to forgive, to reconcile, to recommend. The Lord is here. He can wash away sins. He can provide encouragement and strength. Thomas Howard wrote, I don't know whether I've met an evangelical who doesn't lament the desperate, barren, parched nature of evangelical worship. And I think that he wrote that because for many people, that's what worship is. It's an empty exercise. That's not what God has in mind for you. It's worship. And fellowship. And companionship. John MacArthur wrote, Worship services in many churches today are like a merry-go-round. You drop a token in the collection box, it's good for a ride. There's music, there's motion, up and down. The ride is carefully timed and seldom varies in length. Lots of good feelings are generated. And it's the one ride you can be sure where there will be nothing threatening or challenging. But though you spent the whole time feeling as if you were moving forward, you get off exactly where you got on, unquote. Church isn't supposed to be that way for you. It shouldn't be an empty exercise in worship. In prayer. In promises. There comes a point where you need to make the decision. I'm going to worship the Lord with a prepared heart and with a prepared mind. I'm going to pray with a prepared heart. And I'm going to avoid making promises that I know that I won't keep. But be prepared to make promises that you will keep. God knows the truth. He loves you. He doesn't need another religious constituent. He loves you. He longs for you. He wants you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for that person. Lord, who has come and their heart is empty and dry and parched and barren. Lord, they can't even remember the last time that their heart and their mind was prepared for worship. 
I can't even remember the last time where prayer was something more than just an empty statement that seemed to ring from a hollow sky. Lord, I pray that you would unplug their ears and unstop their heart. Lord, I pray that we would, with honesty and integrity, be willing to speak to you with dignity and with decency. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't take undue liberties, but that we would remember that you are our Heavenly Father, a self-existent God who loves us, who's looking for reasons not to punish us, but who's looking for reasons to comfort us and care for us. Lord, I pray for the person who's been lost in a sea of broken promises. Lord, I pray that you would come, they would come to a place where they'd stop lying to you and they'd stop lying to themselves. And that they would be willing to at least tell the truth about their current spiritual condition. Lord, that they would confess that their sin has separated them from you and that they haven't trusted Jesus. Lord, I pray that that's exactly what they would do. That they would never, ever substitute religion for a relationship and religious ritual for heartfelt worship. Lord, we pray that we could be men and women of integrity that we say what we mean and we mean what we say. In Jesus' name, amen.